Hello, all you beautiful people. Just a really, really quick announcement before I jump into the beautiful music to come and hopefully beautiful words. We'll see. Got a lot more comments on the music than the words, but uh, that's thanks to Hana. Thanks to Cello Joe. But really quickly, just wanted to say I'll be speaking next week, uh, Tuesday, the 13th of June. If any of you are in Portland, I'll be doing a Pecha Kucha talk at Holocene at 7.30 on Tuesday. All the details are on uh, the website and in the show notes at logansullivan.com. So check it out. Thanks so much and let the music begin. So what exactly are human rights and why are we in favor of them? Now that may seem like a really silly question with an automatic answer, but people tend to answer that question a bit differently. Though at the core, we all seem to share something in common. And we'll get to that. What does it mean to be a humanitarian, whether in practice or in belief? There seem to be even more answers to this question than the first one. Yet when we stick to the more official and universal definition of humanitarian, there do exist some more official answers also. So in this episode, we'll explore the principal global frameworks we created to protect and aid the most vulnerable people in the world. We'll boil these frameworks down to their most fundamental elements to decipher which components of human rights and humanitarianism we seem to all agree on and the sound rationale by which we agree. But should the unquestioned, nearly universally accepted rationale guiding human rights and humanitarianism, assuring the protection and the aid of all humans, should this rationale crumble entirely when considering non-humans? Welcome to the Impactivism Podcast, where we explore how each of us, as individuals, can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number 18. So as a quick warning, and only because I don't want to take anybody by surprise, I'll throw this out here right from the beginning. In this episode, I will be applying the logic by which we feel it's imperative to protect vulnerable humans. I'll apply this to vulnerable non-human animals. And much like we don't only want to protect attractive humans, or those of our same race, or those who we share something in common with, I won't only be talking about protecting the animals, that we happen to find aesthetic, attractive, or cuddly. The puppies, the pandas, and the whales. I'll be talking about them all. We all seem to agree that every child, regardless of where they happen to be born, what groups they happen to belong to, how cute they are, every child equally deserves the opportunity to live well and not to suffer. And following the same logic, it would make sense to suggest that every animal 
equally deserves the same thing, not to suffer and to live well. And in this, the rational discussion necessarily leads us to the animals that we farm and that we eat. So if that makes you uncomfortable, I just ask that you listen to the next couple minutes, then feel free to end this episode and move on to others. So if you feel inclined to skip this episode, I ask you then to keep in mind how you'd feel about maybe the CEO who felt uncomfortable about the notion of corporations contributing to climate change or resource exploitation, who preferred to ignore the debate out of their own discomfort and convenience, or the male politician who felt uncomfortable about the notion of gender-based pay gaps or discrimination in the workplace and preferred not to examine the evidence due to its discomfort and intellectual inconvenience. Or even that stubborn friend whose actions are harming your other friend in a way, but who you know will never change, let alone allow you even a moment to talk about the impact of their behavior on another who simply doesn't deserve it. Just remember how frustrating that can be. And when these people avoid these topics, activists and angry friends alike, they yell their emotional frustrations at them. But this often only causes them to bite down harder on their stance because that's easier, more convenient on their conscience than admitting an imperfection or ethical inconsistency may exist between their beliefs and their actions. And evaluating and examining anything is hard enough. It's even harder when making changes in life based on inconvenient conclusions. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort to do that. It's just so much easier not to think about it, right? And to avoid being exposed to notions that might create tensions when pressed against our versions of how the world works. Well, I've made lots of promises on the podcast before, but in this, in this space, I made a promise that, you know, I'm laying out rational arguments as food for thoughts and food for actions, right? To be accepted or rejected based hopefully on rational analysis as to the best of my ability and to the best of your ability on rational analysis. And it's not a place for having arguments of the emotional variety. I'm not here to appeal to your emotions. I'm trying not to. So I plan only in this episode to draw the parallels between human welfare and animal welfare and propose some logical contradictions, again, as food for thought, to either be accepted or rejected, hopefully via rational personal inquisition in the aftermath of this conversation. And the last thing I will ever try to do intentionally, the last thing I'll ever do is try to incite guilt which evidence shows time and time again is not an effective way of communicating information that you hope to be heard. And it's neither what you want to hear nor anything remotely close to what I want to pitch. The whole purpose of this entire podcast is to highlight the opportunities <laughs> that we have to do good in the world. To do good from this point forward based on the decisions that we make and the actions that we're capable of taking. And to see how incredibly empowering that can feel 
to make very minor changes in our lives that improve the world in much larger ways. How exciting it can be to know that by virtue of having the means to stream this podcast, you are in a position of incredible opportunity. And that's, that's to be celebrated, right? Because, wow, the, 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 the beauty we're capable of creating, this is a gift. And, and it, it, an opportunity of a lifetime to take action based on these opportunities. And I hope this podcast offers ideas and tools to aid in this creation. Expanding on our capabilities to add to the excitement of these opportunities from here forward which I hope, I hope is the opposite of guilting. At least that's what I'm, a- I'm really aiming for. And if any episodes ever seem otherwise, please give me feedback and let me know. And write me a message on Facebook or look me up via the website and, 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 and in the contact, or, uh, contact section because I want to understand how my words are being received. All right, I am much more, I'm much more of an advocate than an activist, which makes me, you know, a skeptically optimistic pragmatist. And so I want to offer pragmatic ideas and I want to communicate them in pragmatic ways that will prove as valuable and as useful as possible to those of you who want to activate your benevolence in impactful ways. So communicate to me in return uh, how I'm being received. If I'm coming across in any way, if I'm ever guilting or appealing uh, in irrational ways, please let me know. So our ability, again, to impact the world, not to be celebrated, right? not somehow made to shame, which is so common and even more frustrating. It helped, so help me avoid this and, and give me the feedback. Okay, so if you still want to skip this episode because of the discomfort of discussing animal welfare, I appreciate you hearing out this little warning and giving it a chance, and I promise I'll be back with many more episodes soon, so this would be a good place to stop, but I really hope you stick with me uh, for the rest of the episode. I think there's a lot of value in, in the conversation to come that we can all take from, at least as food for thought, if not food for actions. We sometimes consider human rights uh, given, something that has always been and always will be, right? at least in the parts of the world we spend most of our time. And human rights are what we all are entitled to without any debate or questions asked. But these rights were never really rights at all before actually very recently, 1948, at least with some consistency across borders. And without that consistency applied to all humans, then past laws of governments that might have seemed similar to current human rights, they were really just laws of certain nations, and their laws certainly varied from country to country, so we couldn't quite call them human rights, right? So partially in response to the atrocities of World War II, United Nations member states pulled from a couple centuries of thinking on this topic and brought forward the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the General Assembly in 1948. And for the first time, at this level anyway, on such a global scale, it established a comprehensive universality to the basic rights we may all now take for granted. So this declaration, along with smaller works in the past and the many 
more that have added to it in follow-up, have accumulated over the years into the body we now refer to as international human rights law. This is the framework that obligates governments to act in certain ways and to refrain from acting in other, in other ways, with the objective of protecting the most fundamental rights and freedoms of all members of humanity. So since 1948, additional treaties and conventions, declarations and resolutions, as well as customary international law and general guiding principles of intergovernmental agencies, they continue to build on and strengthen the body of international human rights law. Now, this isn't a history of human rights, and if it was, that would be incredibly reductionist and overly simplified. But instead, for those of us who grew up in a generation where basic human rights were relatively protected to the point that our circumstance may not have forced us ever to ask where they actually came from, I guess this is just a reminder. You know, to remind us that as common sense and automatic as it seems in our generation, Human rights were both heavily resisted and tirelessly fought for, and very recently adopted. 70 years is a blink of an eye for us, right? roughly 0.03% of human history. Before then, we, we didn't have human rights, they didn't exist. So why were they fought for? Why did we fight so long and hard to establish a foundation of human rights? So wouldn't it seem also to be common sense that we, as fellow humans, would automatically be inclined to protect those most basic rights of our neighbors? Well, in a way, that's exactly what happened. Right? We formed tribes and alliances and eventually countries to protect our neighbors at all costs, especially at all costs to non-neighbors, to those either who looked different or acted different or who, who were just far enough out of sight to convince ourselves that they're not quite the quality of human that we are. They must be different. We can't see them. We can't understand them. We don't know them. Therefore, they don't really apply. They're, they're not our neighbors. So because of this mentality, we otherized those not within our group, not on our team, and we exploited them or enslaved them, tortured them, executed them in the name of greed, in the name of fear, and for our own prosperity and, in ways, peace of mind. Well, our upgraded version of humanity, the one we're all part of at the moment today, agreed for the most part to rise above some of these exceptionally cruel tactics of aggression and deprivation. But we haven't yet upgraded to that version of humanity where we simply agree to rise above nationalism and above misguided patriotism, this hardly modified tribalism that just <laughs> that prevents us from simply living in peaceful harmony, right? <laughs> and it sounds incredibly cliche, overly optimistic, overly idealistic, but don't mistake me for you know, that simplistic idealist. But wouldn't that just be so effortless if humans adopted reason, critical thought, and the inevitable empathy and compassion that follows this type of thoughtfulness? If we just looked from each other's points of view from time to time, accepted our differences, understood that our greed comes at an expense to others, maybe if we just all... <laughs> 
could just lay down more often to stare up at the stars and realize how small and insignificant we are. And then remind ourselves how silly it was to fight and absolutely pointless and utterly self-defeating it is to kill and exploit one another when we should all be in this together. Or better yet, and I know I've used this, this analogy before, but honestly, it might be the best daily practice or reminder that I know of. What if we all had the opportunity to see Earth from the face of the moon or from the face of another planet? Maybe then we'd understand that no borders exist from space. No humans are visible. All we see is the green and brown Earth and the blue water we then see that we're just not that important. And because of this, shouldn't we just enjoy ourselves while we can? (laughs) Share and love and help each other survive and live well? Shouldn't that just be so simple, so possible? Unfortunately, that software upgrade, the one that comes with Global peace and collective understanding and love, (laughs) that software upgrade doesn't seem to be due out anytime soon and definitely not within my lifetime. Nonetheless, we've come pretty far in establishing frameworks to protect our basic rights. But in the end, we have to ask, who was most likely to fall victim to what we now call human rights violations? Who were those most harmed by an absence of human rights law and thus, you know, those who benefited most from its establishment? If we can answer this, we can break down what human rights really mean, why they were fought for, and why we might continue to so strongly support them. Now, this wasn't always the case, and there were likely exceptions, but for the most part, the powerful were rarely deprived of these rights. In, in our human history, rarely exploited so excessively, rarely enslaved, rarely tortured, rarely without water, without food. But the weak and the vulnerable, the less resourced and disempowered, they fell victim easily and regularly, most often to the benefit of the powerful. So again, what are human rights and why are we in favor of them? So of all the variations of responses to this question, All answers seem to boil down to one thing. Human rights, of course, protect everybody, but really they protect the most vulnerable human beings from the tyranny of both unfortunate circumstance and of more powerful people who may not have their interests in mind. And we support human rights because we know very well that powerful, unsympathetic people do abundantly exist. Though their greed and their harm You know, they may cause, sometimes it's unintentional or ignorance-driven, and we can't call them evil because of this, but that's a different topic. But we also support human rights because we know that these people exist, and we know that all human beings, weak and powerful, deserve not to suffer and to live well. So a close sister to human rights law is international humanitarian law, which is also known as the laws of war or laws of armed conflict. So this is a body of law established in part by the Geneva Conventions 
And I'll, I'll leave the history lesson at that for now. That's not entirely important. Instead, let's step beyond the legal humanitarian framework and into the wider definition of humanitarianism. So I suppose we can be humanitarians in practice or in principle and belief. And of course, we can do all of that together. So as a longtime humanitarian myself in practice, and of course in belief, as an aid worker around the world in war zones and areas of, hum of humanitarian crisis, I can share the four principles that all humanitarian work is founded on. Now, most people aren't quite aware of this and don't really understand that this is just the, the very basis from which all humanitarian work uh, is grown and the, the principles on which we operate. So these are independence, neutrality, impartiality, and humanity. And yes, these can all seem to blend uh, in with one another, but they each have their own separate definitions. So I'll, I'll really quickly uh, break them down so we can understand what humanitarianism is based on and how humanitarian agencies are acting and why. In order to try to understand a bit more of, of why we support them and what they actually are. So independence first. That means that we as humanitarians are not influenced in our service provision by any government or other party, and we operate only on these principles. So if we receive funds from the U.S. government, for example, to provide assistance in Somalia, then U.S. foreign policy within Somalia does not affect in any way how we adhere to these principles and deliver services, at least in theory. <laughs> so as, as a quick side note, yeah, I wasn't going to mention this, a quick side note, one of, one of Trump's very first executive orders reinstated what's called the global gag rule that uh, prevents any U.S. Fund funding worldwide from involving in any way the conversation of abortion, which, <laughs> to be as brief as possible, of course, disrupts doctor-patient relationships. Of course, it leads to more actual abortions in the end, and study after study, and all of the data shows us this. It's, it's not even in question. There's no debate there. Uh, most of which, you know, these additional abortions are unskilled and unsan unsanitary. And of course, that leads to more deaths as a result, significantly more. It leads to the closure of reproductive health clinics. And though there do exist exceptions for the case of rape, in actuality, this exception may not always be actionable when a clinic was, has already been closed or when clinic staff are so afraid of making a mistake that they remain far on the safe side, right? So if you think of it this way, if they, if they do make a mistake and the donor finds out and they are breaking that rule, then they have a, a high chance of losing their funding. And if they lose their funding, then everybody at this clinic loses their jobs, including them. And the clinic providing support to their whole community will be closed. And in the end, it will probably be known that it's their fault. So they have a lot of incentives to stay on the very far safe side, as much as I hope in reality that it doesn't happen that way, but uh, it certainly leans in that direction in a lot of cases. But again, that was off topic. So uh, <laughs> back to the humanitarian principle. So the second principle is that of neutrality. So this means that we do not subscribe to any side of a political, communal, racial, tribal, religious uh, conflict, and we deliver services only based on need. So as an example from my time working on the Syria border, I worked in, in mainly in Lebanon and Jordan, uh, covering the Syria crisis and uh, Turkey and Iraq. 
And humanitarian agencies there did not pick sides between the government or opposition groups. And as a result, they aimed to provide basic services, including life-saving health care, uh, food, shelter, water sanitation, hygiene, nutrition, psychosocial support, and that list goes on, to all Syrians in need, period. So this means all civilians, including the supporters and families of the freedom fighters, supporters and families of government soldiers and extremist groups alike. So this isn't providing any assistance that pushes one of those... Um, one of those initiatives forward, it doesn't support one side of any argument that anybody's fighting for. So the next principle, impartiality. This means we do not discriminate in who receives humanitarian assistance based on demographics of any kind, whether it's, again, nationality, which side of an argument you're on, religion, race, gender, age, anything whatsoever. Rather, assistance is provided based only on needs. Of course, with limited resources available, this means the most vulnerable. And lastly, the principle of humanity means that all people are treated humanely and equally in all situations, and that we thus deliver resource or deliver services to the most vulnerable first. Because if everyone is equal and we are humane, Right? The most vulnerable are in most need of assistance and could benefit most from intervention. So they will be the first to receive assistance. And just a quick caveat, in practice, <laughs> we differentiate uh, humanitarian work from development work. And development work does not subscribe to these same principles and holds sometimes differing objectives. So humanitarians are those responding to the tsunamis and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and in the war zones and refugee crises and famines and floods and all the other all the other crises and development work is longer term less urgent sometimes but often of course incredibly important and and generally they they have the opportunity to be more strategic almost always more efficient and definitely more sustainable uh, yet also, quite often, just from, from my opinion of how we solve global problems and from my experiences and observation, of course, and, and or anecdotal, sometimes we're prone to misguidance when certain types of development can result in benefits for the top half of society when it's believed that it's helping the bottom half of society. But that's, again, subjective and, of course, case by case. Um, I don't think entirely subjective, but case by case. And as I say that, I have to also say that humanitarian interventions are often equally as misguided, but in different ways and incredibly susceptible to both corrupted thinking and corrupt actions. But when implemented intelligently, sustainably, and justly, both humanitarian and development interventions are absolutely vital in alleviating suffering and increasing well-being within the world's most challenging less prosperous context. And we can investigate to see which of these initiatives right, and which organizations are most effective here and which are ineffective. And hopefully we can, we can su support those select few that have the highest levels of impact, effectiveness, and efficiency. And that is a very, very small percentage of all initiatives. So if we're going to support one, shouldn't we commit ourselves to exerting the effort it takes to support, to, to differentiate between the good and the best and to support the best. 
Uh, I know I talk about that a lot in the podcast. And that's uh, in, very much in line with the concept of effective altruism. And if anybody's interested in that topic or learning more, uh, infinite resources available. So check out the website. I have uh, links to all kinds of things at logansullivan.com. And just a very quick uh, example to share. Uh, maybe if, to demonstrate how effective aid has actually been in past decades, a combination between humanitarian and development work for all skeptics out there that, that want to believe that, you know, it's more convenient to believe that aid just doesn't work. So don't involve ourselves, don't donate, don't think about it. But for this example, this, let, let's try to ignore every disaster, every war zone, all the education, all the assistance provided around the world since the 70s and pretend that the only thing foreign aid ever achieved was the eradication of smallpox. So if that were the case, then in the, our lowest estimates, the lowest estimates that exist among researchers and economists and everyone else who's explored this topic, the lowest estimates was that smallpox was killing 1.5 million people per year before it was eradicated. Though the real numbers were likely double that and of course, if populations continue to grow, then that number would continue to grow as well over time if we did not eradicate it. So vaccination campaigns eradicated smallpox in 1977, 40 years ago. So in that, you know, at the absolute least, then we could say that 60 million lives were saved. And of course, again, it's probably much higher than that. But we take the lowest numbers, and I try to always do that on the podcast, take the lowest numbers because the lowest numbers are often shocking enough. And uh, that protects from any uh, anyone trying to disregard the argument based on it seeming like it's exaggerated. But by contrast, the total deaths from all wars, all political famines, all genocides and terrorist attacks in that same 40 years was about 12 million. So that means that vaccination campaign, this one vaccination campaign, saved five times as many lives as would have been saved by achieving world peace 40 years ago. Isn't that that's crazy? And with a total of $2.3 trillion spent on foreign aid in that period of time, if nothing else was effective in any way at all, this would mean that aid, this foreign aid, saved one life for every $40,000 invested, which is about 150 times as cost-effective when it comes to saving lives, as it is for the U.S. to invest in healthcare in America. And again, these are the absolute lowest estimates and pretending like nothing else ever saved a life in the past 40 years, but all these numbers are likely so much more significant than I'm sharing right now. Anyway, that was another side note just to demonstrate that aid, among all of its inefficiencies, among all of its ineffectiveness, achieves a great deal. And when I am skeptical of it, when I am critical of aid, I am not critical of what it's actually achieving. I'm more critical of the difference between what it's achieving and what it has the potential to achieve if we were as, ef as effective and efficient with our resources as we, as we can be. Again, side note, so back to humanitarianism. So the most basic, a humanitarian in practice, or in principle rather, a humanitarian in principle believes in protecting the most vulnerable human beings from undue harm and suffering, either at the hand of circumstance or at the hand of other more powerful human beings who exploit them. So hearing all of this, 
so there's a music break coming up. Really think about this. Pause and think about it. Do you consider yourself a supporter of humanitarianism and human rights in a world that you want to see? Are these ideals present? humanitarianism and human rights down to their most basic tenets, we see something in common. It seems that these fundamentals are both a product of reason and a product of emotion. They are logical ideas that simply make rational sense and ideas that we all just want so badly to believe in and to support. So at their most basic, humanitarianism and human rights protect the vulnerable from suffering and from injustice on behalf of both unfortunate circumstances and the hostility of those in position of relative power. So in other words, supporters of human rights and humanitarianism believe that vulnerable human beings deserve not to suffer and to live well, and that the powerful should be prevented from harming or exploiting them. So with this in mind, I have to ask one question. Should this rational conclusion and strong emotional belief system crumble when we change one word in that last sentence? When we replace human beings with sentient beings, meaning living beings with the capacity to feel pain and pleasure and other emotions, which includes humans, it includes your dog and your cat and the dolphins and the koalas, and it includes any other non-human animal. So now I'll say that sentence one more time real quick. Supporters of human rights and humanitarianism believe vulnerable human beings deserve not to suffer and to live well, and that the powerful should be prevented from harming or exploiting them. So this very rational conclusion and strong emotional belief, it sure seems to crumble when we look at ourselves in practice when we interpret you know, what our actions actually mean and how they might be contradicting, or contradicting to what we believe. So we donate to charities and we volunteer our time and we subscribe to movements and religions that we believe in. And of course, we support humanitarian interventions and in human rights in, either in, in principle or in practice. And all of these actions seem consistent with a belief in the importance of limiting the suffering and increasing the well-being of the vulnerable, at least in our intentions, whether the impacts of our actions actually support that or not. And sometimes we support endangered species, vulnerable to extinction, and we support the local animal shelter, where the most vulnerable cats and dogs are cared for humanely. And all of this aligns perfectly. And we hold a steadfast belief system that is also very supported by reason and a consistent logic. And wow, that's a beautiful and rare thing. <laughs> beautiful and rare. Then in the middle of it all, we order the chicken breast or the cheeseburger, talking about these ideas and then quite literally feast on the flesh of the most vulnerable and exploited variety of living being on the factory farmed animal. We collectively kill 60 billion of them every year. 
And that's about the equivalent of murdering the entire human population once every seven weeks. And that's not including the 100 billion additional animals killed in the sea each year as catches, bycatches, and byproducts of human exploitation. So that 60 billion really is 160 billion, but when we're talking about land animals, we'll stick with 60. And all of a sudden, with this in mind, that unsympathetic, exploitative power group, right, those dictators and, and bourgeoisie acting in their self-interest while neglecting the interest of the vulnerable, that becomes us. That becomes me, you the human in position to exercise this power to our benefit and the non-human animal's entirely helpless demise. And when it comes to human rights and humanitarianism, we do not choose which people deserve the right to water, deserve life-saving assistance, and we definitely do not distinguish this based on how pretty and cuddly they are, how round their features happen to be, how many traits they happen to share in common with us. Our unchecked emotional inclinations might sometimes find us favoring those with traits that we either share or admire, but we've reasoned through this. and We've overcome these biases and agreed in written, established international law that every life has equal value and every person has the equal right to live well. But when we look at animal welfare, we often suppose we are strong believers when we support, say, the pet shelter or oppose the ivory trade or donate to saving the pandas or are disgusted when we hear about the dog meat festival in China, cry when we hear about Cecil the lion, right? the, the, the one lion, the one lion. I don't know if anybody else was driven mad by that whole thing, seeing how much animal welfare energy was poured into that while eating. <laughs> anyway, how often, how often do we think about all this? Talk about Cecil the lion and anything else with a burger on our plate or a chicken on the grill or while sipping a glass of milk or frying an omelet, even worse, bacon from pigs who are more intelligent than dogs. It's just such an interesting and completely backwards, infinitely detrimental fallacy we happily accept. So the purpose of this episode, as I said before, was not to convert anybody to vegetarianism or veganism or to appeal to your emotions on the topic of animal suffering. And I, I, I hope I'm, I'm not doing that. I hope so. Please give me feedback if I am. You know, it was just to highlight a logical inconsistency we seem to actively avoid investigating. One that has just been so engraved in our daily normal lives that it seems radical or for some reason extreme to bring to question. So this was the process through which I reasoned myself into becoming vegan and into beginning to prioritize causes of non-human animal welfare in line with causes of human welfare. So I wasn't the bleeding heart hippie who just looked into the eyes of an animal one day and decided that that's it. I'm, I'm never going to harm one again. I was critical of this for a long time and I went back and forth forever. And I felt contradicting for, <laughs> for I don't know how many years before I really committed to things. 
And I realized that the argument was stacked up against me this whole time right? before I really started to act in alignment with what I reasoned to be just plainly the right choice for me and something I really aspired to stand behind. But unfortunately, I think that reasoned arguments here are rare, probably because such, I don't know, such, it's such an emotional topic for people. For people on both sides of the debate as well. Right? For one side, discussions of animal welfare and animal rights are heavily stigmatized by so many people thanks to some harmful subcultures of the past and the present that have spoken to the cause so emotionally, often angrily, often by attacking those who haven't yet been invited to really consider this really simple, reasonable idea. And it was more often than not the circumstances that prevented them from exploring this idea or they weren't encouraged to or you know they grew up in a way that this was so ingrained and unquestioned that questioning it seemed a bit crazy so they were yelled at and of course those who were attacked you know they tended to bite down even harder on their belief system and resisted any invitation to consider this idea without bias or to have a dispassionate conversation but of course, you know, this emotion is a million percent understandable, yet not necessarily constructive in any way when it's in the driver's seat. Rather, just like any cause we believe in, any cause we really care for, harnessing that emotion as fuel for logical actions and reasoned debates would have been much more constructive. But we're, we're looking for it, right? So, so now we can try our best from here forward to bring sober, dispassionate, reasonable thoughts forward on this topic. The type of thoughts that, from my experience, seem not to have sober, reasonable counter-arguments that really hold their weight. People fish for a lot of, a lot of reasons to oppose this idea. And I'm... I'm the most open person in the world <laughs> to trying to find the the truth here. So I, I, I've been exploring this topic endlessly for a large portion of my adult life and I want nothing more <laughs> than a reason to believe it's ethical to continue to eat meat because I promise I, I'm in love <laughs> with meat. It's the only thing I ever ate, the only thing I ever cooked. And uh, so if you have any way of convincing me of that, I want to hear. So for anyone that believes themselves to be rational and thoughtful, right, to aspire towards truth without bias, towards removing our circumstances blinders to see reality as clearly as possible. I think this fallacy in our cognitive reasoning when deciding both how to eat and what causes to support seems like a topic worth exploring simply because the consequences are just so massive. So if anyone has addressed this topic again and you have a, a rational counterpoint to this, I'd love to see a conversation start maybe on the Impactivism Facebook page. And I'd, of course, love to join in this conversation and see what we can all learn from one another. Again, I'll put it this way <laughs> to reiterate, I loved meat. Right? And that's all I ever cooked. And all of my favorite foods, all of them were meat-based. But I will say now, in especially in the last like few years, the, the meat alternatives are blowing my mind. 
and they're only getting better and better as there's more of a demand, there's more of an investment in creating vegan meat alternatives or plant-based meat alternatives that have the same texture and start to taste the same. And anyone who tried tofu like 10 years ago and decided they couldn't do it, that's that's the past. <laughs> Look now, I mean, if you live in a city with with access to some types of markets that provide this, then there are so many options and restaurants and recipes online to get really, really creative. Uh, so I encourage people to look into it if you haven't recently, because I did the same thing like a long time ago. I tried tofu and I hated it. And then I just thought, no way, can't do it. <laughs> Not a chance. And as time went on, there's so much more just in the last couple of years uh, that are coming to the market. So again, if anyone can bring me a rational reasoned argument for why it is even close to the ethical choice for a critically thinking human living in the developed world in 2017, where a plant-based diet is easily attained on a budget and perfectly healthy, and a lot of reasons to believe significantly more healthy than otherwise, please share it with me so I can start eating meat again. I would love to. And I'm not, I'm never committed to an ethical stance. I'm committed to finding the true answer and, if, and, and accepting the implications of that answer, whatever they might be. And... So I came to this conclusion and stopped eating animal products because I felt that that was the conclusion. So convince me otherwise, and I'll be very happy. Okay, I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Just something to think about. And and feel free, again, to, sh to share this comparison uh, with others, right? The parallels between human rights, humanitarianism, and animal welfare. And there will be more podcasts to come looking at animal wel welfare and some logical fallacies and cognitive biases surrounding these topics. And I don't think there is any question that these are simply the deadliest logical fallacies and cognitive biases, leading to more suffering and preventing more well-being than any common mistakes our brains tend to make. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on all of that fun stuff. Hey, so for those of you who did decide to stick around and hear out uh, the rest of this discussion after that warning at the beginning, I really appreciate you sticking around. I am really interested in hearing feedback on this idea. This is sort of the best. Uh, I, again, this was my reason for committing as well as I can to at least reducitarianism as close to veganism as I can be without over-investing myself or exhausting myself or depleting my energy. And... Uh, There'll be more of these topics to come, but uh, I, I really appreciate you getting through this. And I think that, yeah, I, I think it's the best argument that I've heard, uh, maybe. And I guess I haven't really heard it much, but I'm I'm been developing it in my own head just simply because of my exposure to this field of humanitarianism and human rights and acting as an advocate uh, within those realms and seeing all the parallels that exist between human welfare and animal welfare, seeing how everybody just universally supports uh, these ideas of, of humanitarianism and human rights, but then almost nobody supports the real um, application of this to animal rights when it comes to what we eat. Some of us when it comes to the cuddly animals, but not to the ones on the farm or in the factories. So... Yes, I want to thank uh, Cello Joe and Hana for rights to the music in this episode and all of the episodes 
uh, of this podcast. They have uh, two of my very, very favorite artists. All of their details are available in the show notes. You can find them in the description of this episode on SoundCloud as well as at logansullivan.com. So do check them out. Amazing music, all available on SoundCloud and elsewhere, Bandcamp, etc. So that's all for now. I'll be back with uh, much more soon and some announcements to come up uh, in the in the coming episodes that I think are really exciting. So do stay tuned, do subscribe, do share this if you like the ideas in this episode. Share it on uh, social media and by word of mouth with friends. Uh, pass on the ideas. Don't you don't need to give me credit for anything. You don't need to cite anything. <laughs> just just share the ideas. That's the only that's the whole purpose of all this. So pass on the wisdoms if if they're wisdoms. I'm not sure. I hope so. Okay. That's all I got for now. Thank you so much. And I'll be back with much more soon.